Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. How do people of color make literary careers? Tonight, we find out with this showcase of POC writers in USC's PhD program in creative writing and literature. Part reading, part panel. Uh, this showcase will demystify the multiple paths taken by writers of color at different stages of their careers. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Brian Lynn. I forgot to mention, we do have books by four of our authors uh, that can be purchased at the front. Uh, yeah, that's all. A round of half for that. Good news, good news. All right, cool. Um, I used to be a high school, let me just, I used to be a high school teacher, as some of you know, so my high school teacher self is going to come out, so go along for the ride. Uh, I'm going to greet you, so please respond. Good evening. Good evening. There are too many people in this room for us to be that low. Give me like a 12. Good evening. Thank you. Okay. Um, so show of hands to kind of activate why we're here. Uh, raise your hand if you write creatively, whatever that means to you. Okay, so that's like most of us. Uh, keep your hand up if you would comfortably and confidently tell people, oh, I'm a writer. That's really amazing. Apply to our program. <laughs> uh, lastly, uh, raise your hand or keep your hand up if you have the white man's confidence to know that you continually have access to resources to support your journey in making that book happen. Okay, I came in a little hot with the white man's journey, sorry. Um, the purpose of why we're here, I think, is to close that gap, because I think most of our hands were up at the very beginning, and even for the second one, but when it got to resources and like support and money, uh, that's where it kind of dwindled down. So hopefully we can kind of be a part of a movement, which is how I'm thinking about it, of making the writing world look more like this, because this is amazing. Uh, thank you for being here on a Saturday evening. Um, toward that end, we're gonna be doing two things. As you heard, demystifying kind of the different routes that we took to get to this program and beyond it. Um, and lastly, to showcase all the wonderful things and all the talent that's happening in our program. Uh, we have first years all the way to X, eighth, ninth? All across. Um, so you hear a range, all across, all genres. Um, cool, so let's do some thank yous before we get started. I don't think we've been, the program has been at Skylight before nor do I think they've had this weird amalgamation of like reading and panel and then some more reading. So make a round of applause for Skylight for letting us be here. And maybe you can't see them because they're off to the side, but make some noise for all the people reading today. Uh, I want to shout out especially Lisa Fenderson, Lisa Lee, and Tisha Reikley Aguilera for co-leading this event with me and making it happen, so thank you. Uh, none of the 12 of us would be here in this room, in this program, without two people in particular who are here. Um, Dana Johnson, who is our program, our department chair right now. Dana's right there. <laughs> and also Janelyn Bliss, who is our graduate coordinator. So thank you. <laughs> and lastly, thank you to everyone in the LA literary world and beyond who reached you to help you come here. So thank you to all the people who retweeted, retweeted, whatever, whatever. 
And to help us figure out how to reach more of you, um, if you look at your program in the top left, where it says formation, shout out Beyonce, uh, what's the URL it says? It's like tinyurl.com slash. Okay, so there's a sign-in sheet there, because again, I'm thinking of this as a movement, we're thinking of this as a movement, hopefully there will be more events like this. Um, sign in to let us know you were here and how we reached you, that way we can better optimize this whole experience. Cool. Um, all right, let's get to it. Um, today's structure, as you heard, is gonna be six readers, a panel, six readers. Um, we're doing our best to hold your attention span. Every reading will be under how long? Four minutes. Four, thank you, Tisha. <laughs> Tisha is our mayor, she's gonna hold down the law, four minutes. Uh, that's a very short time. Those of us who have books out already uh, are gonna be here to sign them if you wanna buy them and get them to sign, so please do that. Um, our bios are not going to be read to save time. You have them. I think we're all good. Cool. Without further ado, make some noise for Jonathan. Yeah. The first time, you simply watch. You drive your 87 Dodge Raider up Old Cutler Road to a high rise that overlooks the Miami River. Though you were searching for English tutoring jobs, the Craigslist ad you found buried in calls for 18 plus nude girl models, the one you are responding to now, read, watch my boyfriend and I. Perhaps you'd have given it no further thought, but your rent's late and the ad seems tailored for you, preferably 6'2 or taller, preferably 200 plus pounds, preferably black. You enter Morgan and Tim's condo, their bedroom, to find that they've already begun, basic enough. You figure they timed it to start when security called up. Morgan sits at the bed's edge, her elbows propping her torso. Tim's head eclipses Morgan's pelvis, his naked back twists so that his face presses into her. The light sent from across the river soaks Tim's muscular back and ass. As promised by their ad, their silhouettes are attractive, conventionally. And should they look up from their work to see you inching toward the bar cart pressed near the doors that let out onto the balcony, they'll see that you meet their specifications. You avert your eyes though they are paying you to watch. And although they'll want to know you are present, you step furtively toward the cart. You find the payment they promised in an envelope leaning against a bottle of Patron. You pocket it, thinking how strange it is that someone who's been broke his entire life can recognize the weight of cash. You shoot a mouthful of tequila before Morgan's murmurs bring you back to her. She grips Tim's head with both hands, stifling him with her crotch. He emits breathless gurgles. You try but fail to make out what Morgan is saying other than you, you. The rhythm of her murmur suggests it's the same words over and again. You want to, you want to, three, four. You want to, you want to, three, four. Tim. Tim's fingers are working vigorously just below his chin. Morgan comes, or Morgan approximates the signs of orgasm. Her body spasms tenderly and she catches Tim's hand then collapses into silence. Tim keels backwards, panting as though having emerged from the depths of the Atlantic. You tilt back as much tequila as you can without choking. Should Tim or Morgan turn to acknowledge your presence, you are entirely too lucid to respond. Morgan stirs and crawls over the mattress to the bedside table. This triggers Tim, who lifts himself onto his knees. He faces the skyline, his profile, his profile facing you. Morgan approaches from behind and slips something over Tim's neck, a necktie, you think. 
Tim takes his semi-hard dick in his hand, and Morgan tightens the tie, sending Tim's arm into overdrive. He strokes himself furiously, and Morgan digs her knee between his shoulder blades, tugging. Tim leans into the strangulation. Morgan heaves in the opposite direction. She starts into a rhythm. You, one, two. You, one, two, three, four. You tilt your air, fighting to distinguish her words, but it's unnecessary. As Morgan raises her voice, first from a whisper, then to a shout, you little man, she says, you little worthless white man. Please help me make some noise for Douglas. Hello, so good to see everybody out here. We out here thick, much respect due. Thank you, Brian, thank you, Lisa. Thank you, uh, Tisha, oh, hey, students are here and stuff too, and thank you, USC. Um, I'm gonna read uh, maybe two poems from new manuscript called Trouble Funk. Uh, I guess all you need to know is um, it's about my parents getting together, uh, well, a world that's like that world in the late 70s, early uh, 80s. Uh, and my dad was a DJ, so each poem is entitled one of the songs he used to DJ. First one is called Go For Your Guns. 1977, the year of the Roots miniseries. They watch how Kunta won't be Toby, how he can make believe he won't need that foot, how he ain't afraid to lose it. A van could be a home if you're not afraid to move it. I'm gonna paint it green, he told her, emerald or jade, something regal, she says. Above their heads, adorning the wall, a velvet painting of a black woman birthing the universe from her skull, afro aglow with her thoughts, galaxies ripe with rings circling planets, beltways of stars lit like a trail doused with light falling through spider webs and leaves. You know, you can't leave. You gotta live with me in this raggedy van, she says. Records and cords, pipes, cups, razors, lighters everywhere. Her living room all dark except for the glow of the TV, illuminating the line from slavery to their very bodies, still black, still not free, always needing to think on their feet, always ready to flee. Uh, this one's called uh, Get Up to Get Down, then I think I'll get up out of here. Thank y'all, seriously, having a good time. All y'all up here, this is so awesome. Shiver breeze, blue dress, white heels. She's cloaked in the hue of enough. Crushing is the cold and the smiles of all the other women. The before, twilight, a horizon without sun. He ain't even home yet. She's alone on a gray chair, the one that used to lean back. They don't even do that no more. Even the chair won't relax. No, 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 she can't either, waiting for him. I'm going to find her ass, she says to herself. Bet the whole house he's somewhere in a fresh suit. Hat, tie, socks, shoes all matching. A suit that she bought for him. A whole note broken open, funky as a 12th or ninth chord. When she see him, they gonna have conversation. There he is trying to dance, forehead shining under shrove lights. His eyes don't hide from hers, instead say, come here. His silver tooth smile, her arms. She's there without even realizing she's there. Forehead to forehead, etched in rhythm. Eyes swallowing eyes, breath, funk, lust, enough, groove. You are mine, I am you. He say, she say, they say, he say, she say, they say. Ritual now. Thank you.
I didn't mess it up, you know, this early, the first one, always messing it up. But yeah, let's give it up for Krishna, y'all. Everybody get hype, y'all. Okay, thank you, everybody, and good evening. Um, this was an experiment in meta nonfiction, something I haven't written that much of, uh, but I've given it the presumptuous or perhaps ironic title, hashtag best essay ever. <laughs> this essay will begin without fear and without error. A catchy opening will spark curiosity and leave clues to the essay's scope and theme. From this vapor trail, a problem or question will materialize for the essay to duel with. On guard, the essay will say to its own riddle, facing off across the page. Not literally, of course, that would be stupid. <laughs> with imperceptible grace, this essay will zoom out to reveal its significance to the cultural moment. The essay will wink at the traditions and authors it is writing toward and against. The rest of the essay will take place here in the space between active and introspective, urgent and evergreen, personal and profound. If all writing is vanity, this essay will be the mirror that bites back. This essay will Baldwin, it will Didion, it will Degada. <laughs> or it won't and it'll be the better for it. This essay will require no specialized knowledge, but if it uses any, it will connect the esoteric to the familiar. Fourth graders will be able to recognize the language, uh, if, even if they don't have a full command of the discursive context. And postdoctoral fellows starting their fourth careers will be able to say, at last, that essay made that thing and those theories tangible to me. Even before this essay will have been completed, magazines will enter a bidding war for its rights, defying today's meager standards for a freelance pitch. The essay will go to a significant publication, one that even people who haven't read or thought about literature in 20 years, if ever, will have heard of. <laughs> in print, this essay will show up in black ink on white paper. It will have to, but it will neither appropriate blackness or appease whiteness. <laughs> it will be itself. Right, left, center, and oblivious will all find themselves in the essay and think the group being called out isn't theirs. On Twitter, the essay will trend indefinitely. When the publication tweets the link, its followers, their followers, and the huddled masses who stumble upon the hashtag, this is the one essay to read today or any other day, will reply in labyrinthian ping-ponging threads that quote both the essay's original text and the publisher's tweets promoting it. Likes and shares of the essay will coalesce and disperse across social platforms and national boundaries until translations of the essay appear in every human language. Traditional and online book clubs will form around the essay. Just the one piece, no other reading will appear on the agenda. We need to talk about this, discussion organizers will say, adding this text changes everything we thought we knew slash were and charts the remaining course of all sentient life. NASA will beam this essay into space. If alien civilizations exist, this will be the piece of writing to draw them across the universe. Uh, this will be the essay worth emailing to your father-in-law. <laughs> Interrupting his rounds, he will be so excited, he will forward the essay to every South Asian in the hospital, none of whom are patients. This essay will prove that beyond the holy realm of East Indians practicing Western medicine, there's another kind of scripting and scribing, a different way to save a life. This will be the essay that when you call your mother, she'll have already heard about and will have already asked all her friends if they read yet, and if not, good heavens, why not? Shall I Xerox it for you? <laughs> your mother will never lose the Victorian era accent she picked up in a Chennai grade school taught by British Anglican nuns, and why should she? It's the best. This will be the essay that grad students from the creative writing course in which you will have drafted it will continue to tell stories about years from now when they become tenured faculty, part-time adjuncts, or wandering ascetics. 
they will recall how a student that some thought was just a diversity pick had produced the essay, <laughs> the lone work in the program's history to pass through workshop unscathed and unbroken, and this essay will run out of time to stick its landing, but it, it got better, <laughs> trust me. Uh, thank you. <laughs> Uh, thank you. I have the great pleasure of introducing my amazing colleague, Lisa Lee. Hello. Okay, I'm just going to start reading because I only have four minutes. But it's three and a half. I'm reading for three and a half minutes. I already timed it. Okay. My father never stopped loving Reno and was disappointed when Kevin and I no longer wanted to cross over. This might have been when he began to realize that he was going to lose us, though he was the one pushing us to be lost, and I imagine he must have seen that we were forging ahead into a world that would accept us, a world that he could not access, and as we got further away from him and closer to American belonging, there must have been a quarrel within himself, let us go, take us back, that he would have to accept but would never learn. Before our visits to Reno ended, when we were still drawn to the city's attractions, one summer we made our usual stopover on the way home from Tahoe. We checked into Jara's or El Dorado or Sil Silver Legacy and made our way through the gold-rimmed mirrored casino to the hotel's all-you-can-eat buffet where we ate voraciously. The following night, we walked under the lights past the water show set to the right of the Valkyries, me skipping ahead in rhythm with the music, Kevin at the water's edge, his face dark, then light, pulsing with the shadows cast by the waterworks while our parents chatted behind us, their tones low, syllables long and bouncy, the way we knew them to speak in Korean, the conversations tinged with secrecy, though only because our understanding of the language had become that diminished. Before their conversation ended, we arrived at the Coliseum where the circus was performing. My father never failed to pay in cash, and the change at the ticket booth was always returned in $2 bills, which Kevin and I always marveled about, touching and examining them closely, exclaiming that the bills looked unreal, too crisp, like Monopoly money. We picked out a spot in the stadium, settling in with hot dogs and popcorn as if at a baseball game, and we watched with attention as the curtain po opened to the first act, The Lion Show. This occasion was memorable for its finality and the fo following bizarre suggestion from my father. When you get older, maybe you can join the circus. Kevin, my mother, and I all looked at him. He was looking at me. He continued. It would mean that I'd never have to live in one place or settle down, he explained. I'd get to spend my days performing and doing acrobatics, and best of all, I could travel and see the world. You could marry the lion tamer, he said, pointing at the lion tamer's assistant. Her mouth was red as a jewel, skin bare and pillar white, and she wore a gold sequin bikini that winked under the bright lights, paired with a gem-encrusted headdress propped atop her head. You could be her. Doesn't that look fun? My father said, pointing still. The lion tamer had wild eyes and no shirt. His tan chest waxed and oiled like that of a bodybuilder. He moved his head in and out of the lion's wide open mouth, and with a flourish, he began throwing knives at his female assistant, who stood stock still against a wooden plank. She smiled, never flinching, and appeared content, but I could feel her terror the way I thought I could feel the psychic pain of mannequins at the mall when I looked at them long enough. Don't you think the lion tamer is handsome, he said. No, I said incredulous. My mother proceeded to scold him. A disgrace, she might have said. How would we explain it to our families? The four of us were sitting in a row, Kevin and I in the middle, our parents on the outside sandwiching us. 
My mother leaned in, speaking to my father across the tops of our heads. Her voice was low, as if she was being hushed. How would Jane have children? Would they be in the circus too, traveling from town to town? Thank you. I have 25 seconds left. Um, uh, next up is Muriel. <laughs> she just, sorry, Muriel Leung, but I pronounce it Lung, so I don't know. Muriel will, okay. Thanks, Lisa. Um, thank you so much to Brian, Tisha, and Lisa for organizing all of this. Um, I've been granted one minute, so I have one poem. This is from a new project, um, from a new book, I think. Um, and it's from a, a serial a work that's entitled When I Imagine All the Possibilities of the Swarm. Um, have you ever tried to fit all your exes all in one poem? <laughs> Uh, I managed to do another 25 lines, and um, so this is it. Suppose everybody I ever loved made up a tiny universe in which each one thrived in their own planetary hues. I mistook each one for the central star, common mistake. And still, I draped each of them in a garment of changing seasons. How many moons, I asked. They answered, and I supplied. The universe moved in strident form, each planet missing the other in orbit. I did not intend to collapse the blue planet, still unfurling in its newness, but the layers of its life saw no future for water. I abandoned a dry well, I floundered. Years ago, the universe held a pale sun. It struck a match to every star-kissed body, and in its stillness was painful as glass. I thought falling in love meant white-hot, but that was only a fraction of the universe of time. I felt the shadow first when I pleaded, eclipse me. It was a chaos of spurs and it burned. It came and went and in returning begged the spun miracle of rings. There would be no end to this carrying. For them, I knew I would always wait. Turning my body over, I saw the universe was halved, its noisy assemblage sliding towards collision. I held the planets close. I pressed their gaseous swarms to ruckus mass. I did this so they would believe me. Having endured the labor of the current, the universe was fast expanding. It needed to fold. Even I could not bear it. I surrendered, and I love them all. Thank you so much. I'm excited to welcome to stage Tisha Marie Reikley Aguilera. This is a flash fiction piece titled Voices for Juan. Driving east on Interstate 10, the sun peeks up over the distant mountains, blinding me despite these pricey designer sunglasses. I crank up the AC. Damn. It's been years since I trekked across this desert. Swore the last time I'd never do it again. Because last time, well, I don't remember much about last time. Just knew that when I left, there was a lot worth forgetting. Squeezed my eyes tight and wrung out all the water. Haven't shed a tear since, haven't drank a drop neither. Almost 10 years sober, and now I got across this barren desert. I may die of thirst. The wind blows across the highway, tiny pellets of sand tap, tap, tap on the side of my car. Doesn't matter how fast I drive, how slow I go, always the same tap, 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 like mama's nail on her dead front tooth when she was figuring the bills or waiting for the oven timer to ding. 
hobo dinners or sloppy joes, lasagna, or that damn tuna noodle casserole. It infested the kitchen towels with its funky, cheesy aroma. When I missed her, I tried to make it, and I was sick for days. Maybe it's not sand. Maybe it's mama's scattered ashes are drifting back and forth across this highway, watching out for all us, fast driving on two little sleep travelers heading to Blythe or leaving Blythe for bigger. Not necessarily better. See, mama spent her whole life in this town alongside the river, never wanted to leave, said she never needed nothing she couldn't get right here. But I saw what happened to people like me who stayed too long, loved too hard, and drank too much. When I left last time, the sun was rising behind me, chasing me out. Before I merged onto the freeway, I filled my styrofoam cup with crushed ice and cherry Mountain Dew at the Easy Mart. Friends said riding with the window down would sober me up real good. Didn't have much choice. With no AC back then, my back started sweating before I passed Corn Springs Road. Maybe the salt from the pumpkin seeds got my heart to pounding too loud. Maybe the extra dose of caffeine coursing through my veins made me hear them voices. They weren't coming from the radio. Nothing but static from Scirocco Summit to just outside Coachella, unless I switch to AM and then all the radio stations from Mexicali come in loud and clear in Spanish. What I heard was definitely English. Can't catch me, from the woman who stole a pint of schnapps from discount liquor before she ran into the path of a big rig. Be right back, from the guy who left the party on the levee to get more beer in town and rolled his Jeep on the rocks. Cannonball, from Big Liz when she jumped off the bridge into the canal and never resurfaced. Eat my dust, from the kid who jumped the biggest sand dune on his motorcycle and collided midair with a four by four truck that dragged half his body across the sand. Those voices followed me all the way to Los Angeles. They lived with me, silent mostly. But when I hurt the most and wanted a drink real bad, they'd cry out. They remind me what I left behind because nothing lasts forever in this world except pain and longing. This time, this trip, another person I love is gone, gone too young. I should have come back sooner. Maybe I shouldn't have left. Thank you. Um, how lucky are we to enjoy and soak in this work? This is amazing. Thank you all so much for having read. And if you're a panelist, can you please come on up with a folding chair and we'll do a little set change. Can I get help with the mics? Now is a great time if you want to use your phone to log in to that Google form. I'm a teacher if you can't tell. Maybe I'll use that. Yeah, and you gotta. All right, cool. Uh, I can take them out. Right? This were Beyonce, there would be a movie playing right now, but unfortunately. Can y'all share the mics and I'll use this? Yeah. All right, cool. Yeah. Yes. We good?
Okay, cool. Um, so as a way to get to know all of our panelists, I'm gonna ask them, tell us about an obsession you have, either on the page or in your life. So tell your name, uh, whoever's ready to start, feel free, and then pass the mic down. Obsession on the page or in your life. Um, I'm Jonathan, and uh, I'm obsessed on the page with uh, complicating or, um, conceptions or portrayals of blackness. Uh, and in real life, I'm obsessed with um, my writing career and my website stats. <laughs> my only obsession, as those of you who know me know, is food. And on, not just in my life, on the page, um, I try to kind of get the rural childhood that I had to coincide with the chaos, urban chaos that I live in now, so. Thank you. Um, on the page, uh, grief, loss, melancholy, all this fun stuff, queer stuff, affect. That's why we're besties. Um, <laughs> My obsession on the page is interrogating um, colonial documents, institutional documents, state documents, and corrupting that language um, in order to rewrite the archive. Um, and other obsessions are Kit Harrington as Jon Snow. <laughs> I just, wow. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, kind of, you know, reliving sort of uh, 90s subcultures, you know, because it's back and I feel young again. So thank, thank you, Gen Z. Cool. Um, as is already starting, so Lisa right here and Marcus over there are passing out note cards and pens. Uh, that'll help us curate questions. So if you have a question, write it down in the note card. Uh, they'll collect them before the end of the panel and then we'll choose one or two to ask. Does that make sense? Cool. <laughs> um, we thought of these four questions that we designed in terms of stages of making a writer's life. Uh, so kind of trace that arc. Um, ask or answer the question if you're moved. Maybe two people per question. Cool. Um, our first question is, uh, what was, tell us about your journey in coming to identify as a writer and really owning that that's one of your purposes on this planet. We only have 20 minutes, so we have no softball questions. Why are you? <laughs> okay. Um, I think that identifying as a writer was the only way I could get out of trouble. Um, I was, um, you know, I think I've just kind of had to come to terms with this language. Uh, considered an at-risk youth uh, growing up in Houston, um, I was sort of put through the system, um, you know, as an at-risk youth, constantly in trouble. I had a couple of run-ins with run-ins with police. And processing that trauma um, on the page through poetry, through form, has been helpful in unpacking all the layers of violence that um, sort of visit the, uh, the body, right? The person of color body, the female body, the queer body. Um, so uh, writing through that has been, and finding language um, or languages, grammars, uh, to unpack that has been how I identify or how I've been able to identify as a writer. Like many of you out there probably, I still struggle to identify myself as a writer. Um, I live daily with this like, oh, never mind, I'm not gonna do this anymore, forget it. But there are some people in the audience who I won't call out, um, but she tells me all the time I can't quit, I can't give up, and I appreciate that, I really do. Cool, um, how are we on time? 
Okay, cool. Um, so I think after you really own that this is one of the things that you're, that's a gift of yours, I think it's coming to like uh, really master the craft. For me, what's been in tension with learning the craft of fiction has been uh, managing my own project and learning what it is that I do. So as a concrete example, uh, ever since my first workshop, people have told me, hey, your similes are really cool, but there are too many of them? Um, or <laughs> we really love your sentences, but maybe tone it down a bit. Um, so I've been having this ongoing tension between, I think, the craft and the rules versus what it is that I do as a writer and that only I can do. Um, so talk to us if you've experienced a similar tension between the rules and what you do. Yeah, um, for me, uh, I, I think to my MFA experience where it's, it's not so, so much a rule, but if you, uh, if you read fiction from the time that you were a child and you um, thought about, if you think about what you had access to, I think about me reading The Hardy Boys or reading R.L. Stein as a teenager, young teenager, and um, the, the default white character was the, this huge looming thing for me where I don't think I even realized that was a thing until... I was reading like a Hardy Boys where they go to Egypt and there's this scary black character, right? And it's like, oh wait, like I realized they're mentioned in race for the first time. And what that means is that I have to think back all those other books I'd read, suddenly all those characters got filled in in my, in my mind as, as white. Um, and that's, you know, obviously that's me as, a, as a, a teenager, bringing that into my MFA where I was uh, for the most part in my early 30s and still having um, classmates turn to the other person of color in the room and say, you know what I really like about your writing? You don't talk about race. You don't bring that into the classroom. And it was obviously a direct response to what I'd been writing. And it was never that any professor said, this is how you handle race, or this is, um, you know, you should handle race, you shouldn't handle race. But the kind of, um, what was implied by everyone not talking about it and me be, being the only one who actually had characters who had a race, whether they were black, white, Asian, uh, Latinx. And so um, that has been kind of my big uh, challenge that I think we're still, um, some of us are, are in a workshop and I think we're still grappling with some of those things today. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that like when you talk about questions about craft or forum, it's like you always have to talk about race too. And it happens in these sort of coded ways. I think as an Asian woman, sometimes, um, I think there's also like a legibility in terms of like what, uh, how others recognize what you're doing in your craft. And sometimes um, I think like white teachers don't, maybe don't know is that, uh, you know, sometimes uh, writers of color have other different legacies that they look to in terms of how, they, how we study craft and writing and who we look to for experimentation, for how we um, contend with difficulty in our writing and what may not look as rigorous or as intentional actually comes is very rooted in a history and a study of, um, of, of a type of craft that may not be canonical or um, in the sense like white canonical, um, but uh, is, is still very much rooted in that. And so, um, yeah, so I think about that a lot. So I think that uh, an attention to craft is still important, but I think also, um, craft that is widely read and that looks towards um, marginalized writers for um, examples about how to move forward. Yeah, and I think in talking about the inseparability of like our positionality and our craft, like I constantly feel legible in the world and then on the page also, it's like people never really knowing what to do with what's there, um, which is further complicated when you then kind of branch out from 
learning to I think the business end of things. Um, so like professionalization, but then also uh, forming community um, outside of your program or within. Um, so talk to us about what is it meant for you to be, like what does it mean to you to be a real writer, quote unquote, or a professional writer? Um, how have you become one? This is my chance really to promote one of the most amazing organizations on the planet. Um, I, I really feel like uh, I keep going in the writing community because I have women who submit, women who submit, stand up. Stand up, stand up, women who submit, stand up. Yeah, that's you guys right there, uh-huh. Some of you are already standing, yes. Amazing, my women. Um, because comunidad is necessary, like you need that to keep going. And, and a lot of times we have, there's this myth that's perpetuated that writing has to be a solo activity, that you have to do it in isolation. And that might work for some people, but it doesn't work for everybody. And for some of us, that community is absolutely crucial, not just for the creation and the craft, but for sending our work out. And that's what this organization um, does, is to empower women to send their work out. And then in turn, to support one another. I knew coming here today, I would be supported. And I, that is something that it, it keeps me going as a writer and as a professional in this world. If I never publish a book, I still have this community supporting me and keeping me going as a writer. Yeah, uh, just to, to piggyback off that, um, the community is so important. Like I think about when I first was in an undergrad class and asked my professor, how do I submit to literary magazines? And he said, his answer was, do you think you're ready for that? And, um, you know, regardless of whether you, wherever your, your, your level of craft is at, um, I believe you learn so much sending out to magazines, but also at some point we need to learn this information. And so my, even my tuition dollars weren't enough at that point to, to learn. Um, how, do I, how do I go about this? How do I get my work out into the world? How do I understand this? And it was really through surrounding myself with peers, people who were um, either at my same career uh, level or, and people who were especially half a step uh, beyond me, who really uh, kind of paved the way where they, I, I saw their work in a magazine. I'm like, how do you do that? How do you write a cover letter? Or they got their first agent, and how do you write a, a query letter for for an agent? And those are the people who so often are, you know, more than willing to share that information. Um, and I think you have to continually surround yourself with these people. Um, I want to make sure we walk away with something concrete. So I think since you're kind of gesturing toward that area. Um, can maybe one or two of you tell us what's been one of like your uh, like most proudest accomplishments or professional experiences so far, and like what was something you did to achieve that? Let's do a prose and a poetry. I'm moving to LA to go to the USC's PhD program in creative writing with everything I own in a car <laughs> from Louisiana, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. So, I don't know, that's pretty here. Yeah. Yeah, for, for me, uh, I mean, USC was huge and it was a big part of my life plan. I think uh, <laughs> people who know me here are tired of me talking about it probably, but uh, publishing in the Parish Review was, uh, it was massive for me. Um, <laughs> If you, if you win a, I have 
another publication that did a lot for me in terms of people actually reading the piece and magazine editors getting in touch to solicit work. But this is the one where a lot of people, a lot of uh, publishers are getting in touch, um, asking where my book is. And so um, it feels like next level. I know the editors who are waiting on the book. And um, yeah. Thank you. Um, a reminder about the note cards and the questions. I think we're going to have time for like maybe two audience questions. So if you haven't gotten to offer something to Lisa or Marcus, please do so. Uh, last question. Um, what future do you dream for yourself and your work? Uh, well, people are thinking, uh, honestly, just writing, uh, the, having the time to write as much as possible. And I think you have to always stay engaged with, um, I, I love to teach, and I think having a manageable teaching load while I can dedicate three or four hours every single morning to, to the writing, that, I mean, that's just a dream to me. Um, those of you who know me know I was a high school teacher for 20 years before I quit to do this PhD program. Um, and uh, it's always been a dream of mine that one day I'd stand, I, I was at Santa Monica High School, for those of you who are, know, know the area, there's a huge auditorium. And one of my dreams is to be standing in that auditorium with all my former students who bought my book to come out and see that book and have read it because if they don't read it, they know they're going to be in trouble. What was your biggest temptation to quit? Um, I had a relationship that ended that, um, it was a relationship that started off supportive of my writing and then it became more and more about having a conventional life and, um, being able to, uh, give the kind of financial support that I couldn't immediately out of my MFA. And so, uh, I think thinking about like, oh, this, this choice to be a writer has, you know, has serious consequences. And so um, I wouldn't have written my future from that point on any other way. Uh, but, you know, when you start to see those real world uh, consequences or um, at the times where you don't have great funding from USC and you're like, you know, my dad's sick. Do I have, am I going to have money to buy a plane ticket home when he <laughs> dies? Um, those kinds of those those kinds of questions have really uh, impacted me, but here I am. <laughs> I think a lot of you are here to really hear how we make literary lives, and um, it's not easy. Uh, every day asks me to quit. Every day is um, this like fierce sort of push of my own willpower when I have none. <laughs> to keep going, to uh, literally stay alive. Um, you know, the I got here, my son was one and a half. Um, I came here with my husband. And six months later, my book was to be released in September. And literally, the 21st was the release date. And then the 23rd, he decided to leave. Um, so having my book come out simultaneously when my marriage fell apart, my my home broke, um, my sense of security and purpose were challenged every day on top of living with mental illness, right? I live with depression um, and PTSD, which I was diagnosed with um, 
after he left, right? Um, it was this really intense sort of he heaven and hell happening at the same time. And uh, you have to fully invest in your dream. Like, it, it, if everything tells you that it's not possible, uh, like, you have uh, $3.12 in your bank account, or you can't make rent that month, or you can't, like, you still have to do it and you still have to push through it, and you still have to go to readings, and you still have to do readings, and you still have to like put stuff down on a page, and then magical things will happen. Um, one of the things that I was proudest of that happened while all of this hell was happening is I won a Whiting Award. Um, <laughs> which uh, was a blessing. Um, I was... Uh, on the edge of something, right? I was not gonna be here anymore. And then the ancestors sent me something that told me I was doing something right, that I was on the right track. So sometimes it's like life and death. So keep writing through that moment because magical things do happen, so. Um, thank you both for your vulnerability. Um, that brings up a question that we had on the internet, which was, Clearly, life doesn't stop when you enter a program or when you're working on a book. Um, what are tips you have for balancing, whether it's a job, raising a child? Uh, how do you balance your writing work with your, the other labor in your life? I don't. <laughs> I don't. I am, I am like surviving every day, right? But balance has to be struck. So if you're, if you're a chaotic mess, that's okay. Like if you're not balanced, that's okay. Just own it and be like, hey, I'm really not balanced right now, and I'm going to do it anyway. So, And I'll just add to that. As a person who is a compulsive scheduler, when I taught, I was a teacher Monday through Friday, and then I told kids, that's it. Saturday morning, I wake up. I'm not Miss Reichley anymore. I'm, a, te I'm a, a writer. That's what I do on the weekend. And I compartmentalize my life like that for years, sometimes at the expense of family and friends. Um, and then now I have the luxury of a lot more time on my hands with the program. And I still try to obsessively schedule myself, but I, I'm very grateful for that permission to not have to always be, and it's very freeing for those of you who are compulsive schedulers. It's okay sometimes to not write down eat. <laughs> <laughs> or to forget to eat. Oh. Yeah, that helps. Um, and we have one minute, and raise your hand if you're in a writing workshop currently. Okay, raise your hand if you've ever been in a writing workshop, ever. Okay, keep your hand up if you were hurt by something said in your workshop. Okay, cool. Um, so here's a concrete thing. <laughs> uh, what is one thing you change about the writing workshop model? Two answers. Um, so the, there is a really great book um, that contextualized like the writing workshop model that was like, you know, born from um, the Iowa workshop um, and, you know, born from Cold War politics. You should all read it. Um, really interesting historical context. Um, so the model of um, everybody stays silent and you uh, then you offer feedback afterwards is a really traditional model and sometimes it works for folks and that's great. Um, but I think also um, if the end goal is to, su is, uh, to support the mo most vulnerable voices in the room, um, this idea of sort of like everybody comes 
comes into the space equal is not necessarily true. So I think um, an attention to space and setting, um, setting guidelines for how you talk about each other's work and also being attentive to different experiences that inhabit the page. So do your homework before you read uh, other people's work. Uh, Google is really uh, useful so and free. Um, if someone is using um, a dialect that's not um, in the English language, um, do not um, try to italicize them if they leave it italicized. So these are just really basic rules that you can follow um, when the writing. So. Oh, Workshops of Empire. Workshops of Empire was the book that was recommended. Yeah, yeah. thank um, you. Let's end on that really concrete and helpful note. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.